Thank you so much for listening to Honestly Unorthodox. If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast, but just don't know where to start, have no fear. Pretty Easy Podcast is here to get your podcast off the ground and sounding great at an extremely affordable rate. Pretty Easy Podcast helps new and seasoned podcasters by providing production, editing, and podcast management assistance. With Pretty Easy Podcasts, you can focus on your show's content while having a reliable tag team partner handle any and all of the technical aspects of podcasting to help your show sound great. As someone who clearly loves to hear themselves speak, I am completely uninterested in learning all of the mechanics of the technicalities of podcasting, the editing, and even the uploading of certain digital material that's needed to make this podcast sound as great as it does. And Pretty Easy Podcast has taken care of all of that for me, and they continue to indulge my love for getting all of this information out to you without any stress and any concern. You can go to prettyeasypodcast.com and get started today. Working with Alan and Melissa really has helped me avoid these roadblocks that so many podcasters run into with the recording, the editing, the feed management. Whether you're new to it or you already have a show, going to prettyeasypodcast.com really makes podcasting just that. Pretty easy. And now, let's get to the show. He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. Welcome back to another solo pod episode of Honestly Unorthodox. Today, today, today... I have a few questions that have come through that I thought were really thoughtful. And I also have a few concepts and topics that I think would be really helpful and useful to discuss. They're topics that I have um, brought up with my students that have read, that have led to some really great nuanced discussions. So um, I'll start off with the questions because those are just at the forefront of my mind. One of the most frequent questions I've received recently is, uh, Kayla, how are you doing mentally? (laughs) I laugh because generally I just laugh at most things. uh, And I'm very easily amused by things. In terms of how I'm doing mentally, I'm assuming the implication was, how are you doing mentally in light of everything that has gone on? I, I, I feel like the, all, the only thing I could do is laugh in, re- in response to that question. One, because I, I think it acts as a nice buffer for me to better get my thoughts together and gain perspective on my thoughts and do a little bit more thoughtful reflection without letting uh, negativity and the spiraling, the natural spiraling of uh, negative emotions kind of cloud or stain my judgment of how I'm doing. I will say the beginning of all of this, as one can imagine, was very difficult. It's not easy to 
to look at yourself and know that your head was in the right place and you you knew exactly what you were trying to say, you knew exactly what you meant and you hoped that others would share a similar sentiment and I had had so much experience with my students posing far more provocative questions um, and again, leading to such beautiful conversations with them, I never could have imagined that the way I, I brought something up would lead to such vicious uh, vitriol in, in campaigning. I mean, I've talked very frequently about tribalism and how it could really have a detrimental effect on psychological fields for quite a few reasons. I've written about it Jesus feels like a hundred times and I've podcasted about it by myself and with many of my guests. And so it, it really kind of came full circle to see it all unfold in this way and, and be right at the center of a lot of these things. So that being said, it was hard. It was hard to feel like you're doing these things because you want to generate discussion amongst people and, something that's very valuable and important to me is increasing critical thought in people that I speak with people that I host on the podcast, people that are close to me, whether that be personally in my family, romantically in friendships, what have you, it is the most important tool that we could carry with us is our intellect and our understanding and our compassion. And so to see these things kind of fall by the wayside it almost felt, I didn't know whether to laugh or whether to cry. I'm sure, I'm sure I did a, um, a little mix of both for, for quite a few days when all of this first exploded as much as I hate to admit that, but I want to also, I want to be more comfortable showing the human sides of me as well. I'm a human being the same way as anybody else. I, I get angry. I lash out. I blame people. I argue with people. I say the wrong things. I don't say enough. Any conversational error that you could possibly make, I guarantee you I've made it a thousand times. So I know what it feels like. And I think because I became so fluent for so long in lying and shutting down and and twisting conversations around. I'm referring back to when I was um, really thick in my eating disorder, when I became a professional liar, basically. I think it was because of that, that, or at least that was, that contributed to why I wanted to look deeper into how to teach people how to communicate because I was a terrible communicator. And that's still what I want to do. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And so when, when I see things like, you know, we're getting really stuck on these language changes and, and, you know, my feelings were hurt by what you said, Kayla, or you phrased it really poorly. I could empathize with the way things are phrased. There are things that I've heard. Again, I mentioned this last week, uh, that, that make me cringe and that make me say, Ooh, I, I wonder if there was a better way to say these things. And we think about tactfulness for some reason. Now I'm thinking about etiquette and charm school. If you're like a Southern bell, I'm starting to think about th the ways that we present ourselves the power of a first impression and how difficult it is to move beyond a bad first impression. And 
I hadn't, I, I don't want to say I hadn't considered how this would be perceived for those that are new to the podcast, new to what I do, because again, much of what I aim to do has very much or it puts a lot of importance and stock into the value that people get from it. So if people feel like they're not getting any value from it, um, and they give me some thoughtful feedback about ways that it could better be applied to their professional or personal life, I take that feedback very seriously. It's very wildly difficult (laughs) to see feedback when it's presented in such a mean, cruel way. It's, it's disappoint. It's even more disappointing when these sorts of things are coming from fellow colleagues and professionals. It just, it really makes me worried for the potential conversations that we would have with clients and their families when those clients and their families say the wrong thing or they speak in a politically incorrect way. I would hate to think that we were so quick to jump down their throat and just completely demonize people instead of approaching them with the idea that maybe they didn't mean what I think they meant, or uh, we adopt the least charitable position that the person could have taken instead of saying to ourselves, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I'm going to need more information before I jump to a conclusion. This being said, I've, I I haven't been through something quite this dramatic before, at least not professionally. So it has been a little bit challenging, but eye-opening at the same time for me to reflect on my career, why I did all this in the first place. To be completely honest, before all of this exploded, I was already thinking about transitioning into an entirely different field for, um, reasons that are somewhat related, mostly having to do with how many psychological fields have just kind of succumbed to this groupthink mentality. Um, that's just very, very exhausting to, to work with, very exhausting to reason with, uh, very exhausting to maintain motivation to help when you know that the, the foundation on which these fields rest is, is becoming, uh, kind of contaminated (laughs) day by day by, by all of this type of thinking. This is important to note the way that I think about anything. Let's say if my knee jerk reaction is, Oh my God, that is absolutely crazy to me. The same person probably thinks the exact same thing about me. So I want to make it very clear. I am not absolved of any of these human feelings and human reactions that we have to things. I, I just wrote last week a substack about how it's completely normal to have immature and childlike responses to things. We always will. I mean, we could age, we mature more, we gain a better understanding of ourselves and our contribution to our own problems as we get older, but getting older doesn't make us any less human. So that's an important thing to note. Looking back on everything that I have contended with, whether it be an eating disorder, my brother's death, uh, 
my own personal things that I will not <laughs> share on the podcast because frankly, they, they're just, they're personal. I want to keep them a little bit sacred to me. I know that I've been through difficulty before and I could go through difficulty again. I think if I hadn't, if I didn't have a, a very strong sense of self and if I hadn't worked really hard to, to not put, put so much weight into validation from other people or, or other people's opinions of me or doing this for reasons related to social standing and popularity and climbing up some sort of social ladder. I think this would have hit me a lot harder if those things were priorities versus what my actual priority is. And yes, my priority is helping people, but sometimes that means you're doing something quite hard. And the consequences are not always going to be positive consequences. It reminds me of, of one of the concerns that was brought up related to, you know, the, the ethics code uh, in most medical therapeutic fields. Number one, first and foremost, do no harm. Yes, we shouldn't harm people. We're in a helping field. We want to help. This being said, a lot of what we do, at least initially, if we're using the definition of harm to mean emotionally triggered, emotionally hurt, upset, angry, which, which seems to be much of the implication here, um, related to the last two weeks, because, you know, from my understanding, nobody was actually like physically harmed. It's more an emotional tie to the word. It's very hard to do the work that we do without inflicting some kind of frustration or emotional pain or, um, or hardship on to people. There, there really is nothing affirmative about therapy, regardless of what discipline you're in. So regardless of if it's psychoanalysis or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, dialectical behavior therapy or behavior analysis, if if we approached therapy with the intent, I will absolutely do no harm ever might be very difficult to operate and see change the same way that a medical professional might prioritize do no harm, do no harm, do no harm. Uh, you have a tumor that could kill you in two days unless we cut you open and take it out, but I don't want to do any harm. So let's just leave it alone. This sounds like a dramatic example. I have a feeling I will probably get responses to this saying this example doesn't make any sense. To me, from my perspective, it makes perfect sense because much of things like the neurodiversity movement and, you know, um, neurodiversity affirming practices or, or whatever, anything that has the word affirming care in it or informed care in it, the focus is almost entirely on avoiding any type of harm. Instead of building the strength, building the capacity, building the resilience to manage inevitable harm, it is, it rests on us avoiding it. And that's a big problem. That's a big problem to me. I think that it's a big problem when, whether we realize it or not, we are inadvertently projecting these views onto our clients and then they become adults and they're almost, you know, they have these, these 
sometimes disproportionate reactions to things that are quite small. I mean, look at the last two weeks. I would argue that all of this was a wildly disproportionate reaction. And I would wonder how much of that has to do with our insistence on trigger warnings and making sure that everybody is 100% taken care of and cared for all the time. And things are explained just to our liking using the exact language that feels good to us this is what happens when we indulge those theories because the world inevitably will not be able to keep up with our own personal requests for it. And so when things do come up where we hear something we don't like, there's an idea that's proposed that makes us cringe. There's something our employer is making us do that we disagree with. Man, I don't know how we're going to function if we all of our time and energy that we could be allocating towards people that we claim to serve um, is being spent in other ways um, like hurting people's feelings or intentionally being respectful or disrespectful or intentionally, if you were really going to use the word harm, harming people by trying to destroy their livelihood. I, I don't know how we could claim do no harm, do no harm, and then simultaneously engage in quite harmful behavior if we're going to use the the general understanding of the word harm. I also want to know in all of this, um, how, how do we measure what harm is how do how do we measure if harm has been done now again if we're talking physical harm it's quite easy i mean you could see a a, a physical a, a welt you could see a bruise you could see a slap mark you could see scratches broken bones any sign of physical destruction very easy to see emotional harm is almost too subjective to, I'm not going to say be taken seriously because my feelings are hurt the same way anybody else's feelings are, are hurt by things. Um, and, and I expect, maybe not expect is the right word. I would hope that people close to me that care about me would give me the respect of trying to understand what hurts my feelings. So, in that sense, yes, it is important to address this concept of emotional harm and what might have hurt us and hurt our feelings. Where this gets dicey is using our own perceptions of hurt feelings as if they are as logically evident as a bruise or a welt or a broken bone. Because... What hurts me, and it takes a hell of a lot to hurt my feelings, may not be hurtful to another person. What uh, what other people find jarring or triggering or, or harmful or terrifying might not make me blink. This is the, the beauty of perception and the beauty of different perspectives and also why we need to keep in mind that our perspective does not speak for everybody else's perspective on such a subjective manner. So if, if we're going off of, you know, you harmed me because I feel harmed. There's something called Hitchens razor 
which posits that anything that can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Now, we don't so much like the phrasing of things like facts don't care about your feelings. I'm not sure that I necessarily like that phrasing either uh, because it, it is very overtly dismissive of feelings and our feelings are kind of what drive a lot of the decisions we make. So I think that feelings and facts can many times work in tandem. I just think we need to be very careful about equal weight being put into each. So if we're putting all of our stock into the, our initial emotional reaction, so that first impression, and then we allow that first impression to color the logical decision that we make, you could see where it could get very, um, muddy and, and it makes it that much harder to find middle ground with people because we're focused so much on, on differences and finding what other people might've gotten wrong. Okay, moving on to the next topic. A lot of people have been asking about my students, my kids. I post all the time about some of my lectures and the types of the types of activities we do. And a lot of people have asked if I could start recording those. Good news, the semester starts on August 28th and I will be recording audio for my lectures for you guys. So those will be really exciting. And I hope that you get to hear uh, the, the discussions that my kids have because they're just, they're wonderful and they're insightful. I've gotten a few messages from people that teach at other universities that do not have the, uh, they're not in such a lucky position as I am considering what they're able to discuss with their, with their kids. So where I am, I, most everything that you've ever seen me write about on Substack or talk about on social media is fair game to my students. And my God, I just, I love them as if they are my own children. <laughs> They're just, I, I, I gush about them. So I'm about, this is about to be a gush session right here. So if that's not for you, then, you know, feel free to move along. I, had such, and this is me using my own personal experience of walking in with a bias. So we all do this. Okay. We hear very frequently that Gen Z is whiny, that they complain that they're the people throwing soup on paintings, that they're laying in the middle of the road so that no car could get by them because they think they're demonstrating their allegiance to, you know, freaking oil or human trafficking or, or whatever the media has portrayed Gen Z as. I cannot speak for all of Gen Z. I can speak for my Gen Z kids. They absolutely obliterate that media portrayal of them. I mean, quite frankly, <laughs> I've seen more concerning behavior coming from fellow clinicians than I have any single one of my students. My students, not only are they just so open-minded and mature beyond their years. So they're between 18 and 23 years old, most of them. 
they just have such a, a, like a childlike wonder to to approaching anything that I propose in a conversation. And along with that childlike wonder is also just this really fierce tenacity and respect for, you know what, Professor Perry, I know that what you're saying, I could see where you believe it. I completely disagree with you. And here's why. There, I mean, I'm flabbergasted every time I teach these kids the ideas that they come up with and the means by which they present their ideas is, is one of the most... It's just beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see. I can't wait for you guys to hear more um, of what these classes sound like. I hope they live up to, you know, what I'm making them sound like. <laughs> Clearly, I'm itching to get back. I didn't think that it would hit me so hard during summer being away from them and being away from teaching. But it certainly has had uh, a very negative effect on me mentally to loop this all back to this long screed. <laughs> somehow tangentially related to the first question that was posed. One of, one of the things that I take advantage of in my classroom is something I adopted from Peter Bogosian called street epistemology, which is a fancy way of saying it's less about the thing you believe in. It's more about why you believe in it. So you know what? Make the most outrageous claim in the world let everybody, let that marinate with people, let them have their negative reactions. And then we're going to talk about all of the reasons why you came to that conclusion. That is where the meat and potatoes, and that's where the sexiest part of the conversation takes place, is figuring out how people come to believe what they believe. And if we've never been asked questions like this before, which I'll go through a few of them with you guys, I'll kind of walk you through very, very uh, loosely what this might look like in my classroom. And I'll use a funny example that we used for the final. If we've never been asked questions like this before, when we're asked them for the first time, it could almost be a little bit embarrassing to realize that we have no idea why we believe in what we believe in. It, it happened to me the first time I started applying these methods to my own thinking. Uh, luckily, I grew up with my Italian father who just drilled into me that I'm probably wrong 99% of the time. So I was a little bit desensitized in some ways to uh, making errors in my thinking. It could still be quite daunting though to, to, to sit in a conversation and realize, holy shit, I have no idea why I believed this all of these years. I don't even know where this thought came from. And you almost feel kind of ridiculous saying that out loud. I'm not sure if this would qualify as what people used to talk about as imposter syndrome. I... I know I felt very, if there was any, if there was any feeling kind of adjacent to, to what imposter syndrome is or the claim to what imposter syndrome is, I think one of the few times that I felt it recently was in a conversation with, um, Meryl Winston and George Bonanno when we were talking about trauma and trauma informed care and, um, and, and the me and our resilience as people. I mean, I, those are two smart MFers <laughs> with 
I mean, they, not only have they been in each of their respective fields, uh, double the years I've been alive, they've been practicing for, for my gosh. I mean, they've been practicing since before I was born. It could be very, very intimidating to sit in a conversation with people with such rich experience and clinical expertise and knowledge and feel like, wow, I absolutely know nothing. But if we could become comfortable with that, or at least be accepting of the discomfort of that, then that's when we start getting really good at asking questions. That's when we develop humility. Intellectual humility is sexy as hell. And it's something that I teach my kids from day one. So day one, go through the syllabus in about two seconds because you know what? You have the document you could read. I'm not a verbatim read off the teleprompter type of person. That's boring. Passive learning doesn't work for anybody regardless of what people may think. There are studies showing that passive learning does not work in terms of uh, fluency and and long-term longevity of the skill or retention of the skill, but I digress. The only part I will read verbatim from my syllabus, which I'm about to read out loud here, is the part about the nature of the class and the purpose of the overall purpose of the class and my aim for my kids. At the very top of my syllabus, top of page two, the subheading says controversial issues. I'm going to read verbatim what is in my syllabus. If you are teaching a class, feel free to use this if you want. Don't have to quote me. Here it is. I hope to challenge you and to help you question givens, but I do so in good faith and in the spirit of academic and intellectual integrity and honesty. We will be discussing and analyzing a series of controversial issues, example, politicizing parenting, mental illness and stigma, capital punishment, electric skin skin shock treatment, etc. We may also take an aim at current events through the lens of this course and its discipline. And in italics and boldface, If you are easily offended, then this is not the class for you. You may want to consider dropping the course and signing up for a different section. Now, would some people look at this and say, Kayla, I thought you hate trigger warnings? Sure, maybe. Um... The first day of class, I say that part out loud and I that becomes the discussion of the first class because I want to get a pulse on each one of my students. I want to understand what they understand and I want to know what they know. I want to know what they don't know. And I take that as an opportunity. I put the burden on me. It's not it's not on them that that statement isn't written into my syllabus to make sure to stick it to anybody or to be edgy. It's because I want them to know that we in this classroom, we are all equals. I'm not above you. I'm not in a hierarchy. I can make mistakes and I'm fallible the same way every single one of my students is. So if I say something wrong, if I say something inaccurate, if I say something that they blatantly disagree with, I want them to feel safe to be able to publicly stand up in front of their classmates and say, Miss Perry, I think that's completely wrong. I'm com- I encourage them to do this. 
I will actually purposely put a fake statistic on the board and I will talk about it as if it's legitimate. And if none of my kids say anything, I point out to them, like, you didn't even look on your computer to see if this was the correct statement. You just believed me, what? Because I'm a professor? Because I'm a behavior analyst? Don't believe anybody because of their title alone. That doesn't grant you permission to treat them poorly, to be mean to them, to demean them, to humiliate them. You are still going to treat them with the same respect you would anybody else that you find worthy of listening to or worthy of trusting. But you have to show the people you work with that you are willing to get slugged intellectually. Because if you don't, if you don't take the time to show people that you are open to that degree of criticism, how will they ever feel comfortable enough to do it in their personal and professional lives? And times like right now, I think this is why, granted, as hard as all of this has been the last couple of weeks, I've also received some very legitimate feedback uh, that I have already begun trying to apply to myself as a speaker and an analyst and a professor and a friend and a wife and a daughter. So how street epistemology works in my classroom is we make a claim statement, right? And for those of you that have attended uh, any CEUs I've done, this is going to, it might, you know, sound very similar. Sorry if I'm repeating myself. We make a claim statement. Now, I make this very clear. Any statement you see on the board is not something I necessarily agree with or endorse or support. It is a statement, which again, eerily related to what's been going on the last couple of weeks. If you are an excellent interviewer, if you are an exceptional teacher, if you are a, I guess at this point it might be radical, a radical clinician, your clients, your students, will have no idea where you stand on an issue because it's not your job to impart your own beliefs onto the people that you're teaching. It is your job to teach them how to think and come up with their own conclusions. So claim statement might be something like, oh, this was a good one. Peter Bogosian did this one. It was super funny. It's a silly claim statement. The claim statement that was made was, all public places should allow for people to be topless. Okay. Some of the men <laughs> in the video on YouTube said, uh, yes, it should be allowed, but only for young women. <laughs> so, you know, Peter Bogosian laughing, interviewing, he didn't say anything related to well, don't you think that that's exploiting women? What about the implications of their safety? All he did was ask them to expand upon their beliefs. Some of the women agreed and said, I would love to be able to walk around publicly without, without a shirt on. And when you follow that up with more questions, so as the person hosting the street epistemology event, your job is to only ask questions. You could make clarifying statements like, hey, I want to make sure I'm understanding this and then paraphrase the person's point. 
But your job is not to tell them what they should think. And your job is also not to tell them where you stand on an issue. One of the greatest compliments I got from my kids, this was about three months into the semester, um, was I still have absolutely no idea what you even believe in, Miss Perry. To me, (laughs) that was, it made me feel like I had reached some sort of goal set for myself that, yes, I speak very bluntly, sometimes overly bluntly. Sometimes I could be more tactful. Um, But I also don't want any of my own personal beliefs and and values to uh, to inadvertently influence how other people think. I think that will happen naturally. Sometimes it happens. I'm sure there were times in the semester where I did speak about something that I was heated about and, and my kids knew exactly where I stood. But this is where it's really helpful to have some degree of uh, a very thorough self-reflection and introspection is realizing when we're getting a little bit too caught up in our own thinking and it might be time to to level that out with a different viewpoint. So for the final, we actually had a debate and this was a formal debate. So formal debates if if people haven't been in them um each group, it's very similar kind of to what you would see in in court in, in like a trial where each debate team presents their case and they have set time frames and then the rebuttal and the responses are also timed on each side. So um, for some people, it could be kind of overly structured depending on what the goal of the, the lecture or the conversation is. I think it could be really helpful because sometimes people, including myself, don't realize how long they talk for. Some people may have thought that they gave a concise, clear response and you look at the clock behind them and it's been seven and a half minutes. <laughs> so that that's something that all of us could probably work on is learning to get to our point in fewer words and speaking more clearly so that we're allowing people the opportunity, um, to respond a very funny, another topic. One of my kids brought up his claim statement. I allowed him to come up with his own. (laughs) His claim statement was that dinosaurs never existed. Now, as you can imagine, all of us found this hysterical because I mean, it's quite obvious that dinosaurs existed. And none of us could actually tell if he was serious or not, which again, makes for a hell of a student if people have no idea if you're serious or you're kidding. When we asked him, what makes you think dinosaurs aren't real? He said, well, there's just literally no evidence of them. Now, valid response from, from my, uh, from one of my kids. She said, what about all the fossils of dinosaurs that they found? (laughs) his response. Well, I just think that they took the bones of a bunch of whales and sea creatures and land animals and then rearranged them so that they looked like dinosaur (laughs) fossils. And quite frankly, does that maybe sound ridiculous? Hell yeah, that sounds very conspiracy-y. That sounds along the same lines as like QAnon and lizard people, okay? So it sounds a little bit Alex Jonesy. 
Their response to that can actually be tricky. Bear with me, okay? Nowadays, we see academic journals publishing articles that have absolutely no evidence. So to what used to be that nice punch, that nice equalizer question of, hey, where's your evidence for that? People now could say, oh, here, I have an entire journal on anti-fossilism in modern day America. Because that's what our institutions have become. They've succumbed to this tribe mentality where popularity is more important than truth. And social standing and social likability is <laughs> holds more weight than reason and rationality. How do you argue with that? How do you debate with that? Right. When when we hear something like, I mean, look at look at some of the journals that are out there. Peter Bogosian, they just did a, another documentary on this where um, Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, they published a series of hoax papers, many of which were actually published in journal articles. One of the articles that that uh, got approved for submission and publication was about dog humping. Dog humping. Dog humping and how that is, what, what did he say? That it is um, a, a horrible indication and sign that that rape culture has infiltrated our institutions. I mean, Things like that are being published because in some institutions, as long as it meets some quota for a social narrative, then it's perfectly acceptable despite how ridiculous and, and almost dismissive it could be. I mean, these are issues that are quite contentious and that are actually uh, quite hurtful to many people. And if we're that willing to use something like, oh, dogs humping each other is along the same lines of concern, they were trying to prove just how, how far away we are allowing ourselves to walk from reality. And I understand it. My God, I can't say this enough. Do I understand it? <sighs> Ignoring reality feels good when our problems suck. Ignoring reality seems like the easiest thing to do when we can't come up with our own solutions or the solution is too hard or the solution is unknown or it feels impossible. I've done it a million times. I probably still do it on a day-to-day -day basis. I find a way to make reality what it isn't. <laughs> Because again, I am a human being like, like the rest of us are, I get it. I get the need to want to feel like we're doing something important or feel like we are helping other people or helping ourselves or, or contributing to a greater societal issue or the greater good. I still want to do all of those things. And that's, to me, the importance of understanding why we're actually doing what we're doing and looking into the, the, the nitty gritty and the, the unwritten 
uh, I guess, the unsaid pieces of of a lot of what these theories are touting. Because when you start to tease apart a lot of these theories, you will find that they're actually adding to the supposed harm that they claim to oppose. They are actually supporting the hatred that people claim is at you know the uh, the linchpin of America. A lot of these theories engage in the very behavior they have repetitively stated is harmful to certain groups. And it's very hard to sometimes realize that we're doing that when we've been swept up by a group or an idea or maybe we've gained, maybe we actually have gained friendships or, or social popularity or likes or whatever happens on social media that feels like a bump of cocaine. If we are consistently contacting all of those things and we're actively bobbing and weaving against any negative consequences, it's no wonder people behave this way. I mean, Gustave Le Bon wrote an entire piece on um, the madness of a crowd, you know, crowd mentality and crowd behavior and, and mob tribe and tribalism and groupthink. It is, it, it's almost like a modern day Milgram experiment. If people aren't familiar with the Milgram experiment, um, they, they had someone so this was a Confederate sitting in a, like basically an undercover person that was part of the experiment sitting in what looked like a, a kind of a reclining dental chair. They were strapped in and other people that were contributing or, or they were um, participants in the experiment. They were told, okay, come behind here. When you give us the go ahead, every time you press this button, the person in the chair is going to be shocked. Now, the person in the chair wasn't hooked up to any sort of electrical device. There were no shocks being delivered. Now, remember, they're actors. So the people in the chair were told, hey, every time the button is pressed, we want you to kind of scream out in agony as if you were being shocked. There was an authority person that was one of the experimenters wearing a white coat, looked very official, sounded very knowledgeable, and just kind of carried with them this, this you know, this authoritative aura. He was able to convince participants to continue to up the voltage, to continue to shock this undercover person despite him screaming out in pain. What? <laughs> because what? Because we think he's an authority figure? Because we think he knows best? I mean, it's very, it's, it's scary how easy it is for us to, one, believe people without any understanding of who they even are. Two, to engage in behavior that we would have otherwise never engaged in independently. And three, the fact that we attempt to justify our <laughs> our behavior in this way it's fascinating it's fascinating to me that the the things that our minds are able to do when we know we're in the wrong when we're scared when we're intimidated by someone when we don't have all the information and it's the easier thing to do to just follow someone else 
There was a study where you cross the street. There were a bunch of people. One undercover experimenter was dressed in a suit, carrying a briefcase, looking real slick and sexy, ready to cross the street. The other undercover guy was dressed as someone homeless. Now, there, the the, uh, the icon across the street, the, the little thingy that you use to guide whether or not you should cross the street or not, it said stop, and they made it flash, like, very bright, very clearly in massive letters, stop, do not cross until light turns green. When the homeless, the, you know, pseudo-homeless person crossed the street, none of the group followed him. When the man wearing the business suit and the briefcase and the nice slick back hair crossed the street, everybody felt that he was an authoritative figure worth following. I'm asking you the same way I ask my students to question every single possible thing that you are presented with. Every single thing. I don't care if it is someone that you admire and could do no wrong in your eyes. All of us are capable of doing wrong. All of us are capable of making mistakes. All of us are capable of making the same errors that we claim to hate when other people make errors. We're all fallible. I am a human the same way any listener is a human. The more we could learn how to accept that we are probably wrong most of the time, and the more that we could assume the most charitable perspective of another person or the most charitable rendition of another person's perspective, I can't imagine the conversations that we can have. That being said, feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to, uh, to DM me, email me with your questions. You guys have been so great about your support over the last couple of weeks. I really, really, really appreciate, um, people sticking their neck out and putting themselves on the line, seeing the, the negative consequences that can come from it. That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of bravery and the people that all of you work with are very lucky to have you. So that being said, we will see you guys next week. <laughs> this show was produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts and made possible by listeners like you. If you ever thought of doing your own podcast, please visit prettyeasypodcast.com. Thank you.